start this episode of the podcast, we're going to go all American, give it a bit of Joe Rogan, where we say this uh, episode is brought to you by Blue Coast Brewing Company, simply because we're sat here drinking Blue Coast beer. It's a beer that myself and a few other athletes on the Cote d'Azur here are involved in. So, yeah, I've uh, one beer down, Phil, uh, Philip Dagnan, our guest here, has a beer down. We're under a second one. So, I said I wanted to introduce um, the Irish cyclist first off. We had Nicholas Roach on, and now we've got uh, Letterkenny's finest, the one and only Donegalonian, <laughs> Phil Dagnan. Donegal one, yeah. <laughs> Donegal one. So, Phil's. <laughs> Recently retired. How are you enjoying uh, retired life? It's nice to be able to sit here on a Sunday afternoon with a beer in your hand and not have to worry about uh, what's coming up the next day. Well, it's even better. You're providing the beer for a change, you know, on the, on the Blue Coast Blonde, on to my second here. So hopefully you have the fridge, fridge stocked up. No, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the nice things about retirement, really. You can relax and not think about, constantly think about your training and the next training session and the next race and... Um, it brings other challenges, but there's definitely a lot of uh, parts of professional cycling that I don't miss. Uh, I miss a lot of parts, but I, I, there's certainly a lot of things I do not miss at all. Drinking beer is one of them, actually. <laughs> it's one of the benefits, yeah. That's a huge perk, isn't it? Thankfully, being a motorbike racer, we can drink beer during the season, just as long as it's not on a race weekend. So I can't imagine uh, what you guys do. I'm staying from alcohol and the sort of things that you have to do during the, the racing season, so retirement's here get a beer in your hand and uh, enjoy it but with your daughter Orla having been born uh, just almost a year ago now yeah 11 months now yeah yeah so that's been a different um, way of life then it's something uh, that yeah it's it's really gone from one extreme to the other really you know as a, as a professional athlete you have to be quite selfish and think about yourself and um, retirement and be, becoming a father just totally uh, obviously just changed a huge amount of things for me. Uh, my wife, Lizzie, she's still racing, so I've uh, undertaken the role of daddy daycare, mm-hmm. as, as some of the guys have called it here, um, which I'm really enjoying, you know, and, and now that I'm retired, I can I can really enjoy all the moments that I would have I missed, you know, I would have spent 120 days a year on the road, I would have missed so many moments. So uh, I'm really enjoying it, you know, just sort of, got stuck into it and and it's hard work it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be to be honest um particularly those first three four months were were very difficult with all the traveling we were doing but it's so rewarding and privileged to know that I get to spend so much time with my daughter really because a lot of a lot of men out there I'm sure you know they'd love to spend more time with their daughters but they're you know they're off out busy working so You've really taken to the role you're just a a natural dad though that's one thing that I can see you are really good with Orla and can imagine how our dads were back in the day, how things have changed from one yeah. generation in Ireland to the next. I think our dads probably held us like a bag of sugar. They didn't know what to do, whereas you're, <laughs> you're able to look after Orla uh, much better than uh, a lot of guys have seen. So uh, you'd be all right, you know. I've seen you with Orla. You'd you'd be you'd be a dad handle it too. Like if you give you a couple of weeks and you'd be. You'd be right settled in. As long as I haven't got the moustache, because Orla used to look at me with the moustache and say, what's going on? Yeah, she, well, she doesn't like facial hair in general, I think. No? Uh, yeah, I think clean-shaved, bald even, preferably. Then she just thinks you're like a big baby. <laughs> <laughs> ah, she's, she's such a good little girl, so uh, really nice to see you've just um, adapted that role as, as father, because you never know. It's not something you can prepare for, is it? You, um, you don't know how it's going to be uh, one day your baby's born and you're a father. That's yeah, it. yeah. I mean, for me as well. I think I, I was originally I probably would have continued another year or two, um, but of course we were in that us- unusual situation where both myself and Lizzie were racing, and uh, the logistics alone of of us both trying to continue with the training, with the lifestyle, with the travel, with the racing, it really wasn't realistic. Um, and I suppose I was coming towards the end of my career, and I was sort of just going through the motions really as such um at 35 you know I've been professional for 14 years and uh you know Lizzie has so many like huge goals ahead of her over the next two years with the world championships in Yorkshire a home world championships that she can win and uh also you know she's been second in the Olympics before so winning the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020 um so she can do a lot of big things for the next two years whereas I was sort of going through the motions so I was 
I was happy enough to hang up the wheels and, and sort of we can sort of focus on those objectives now together, you know, and I can fully focus on being a dad and, and help and support her through all that. Well, like you said, you've had a pretty impressive uh, career, 14-year pro, and that's probably one thing that's going to be a, a problem speaking uh, now for the next uh, half hour, 45 minutes, <laughs> is because I know how modest you are. So everything, every achievement, every great result that you've had, I know you're just going to say, oh, no, it was, it was just this or it was just that, or somebody crashed or yeah, I was gifted yeah. that. So I know what you're like. You're a, you're a typical <laughs> Irishman where you, you just won't receive uh, credit. I know that. Don't give me a big head, man. <laughs> Uh, even now when we were riding this morning and just seeing how you head up those hills uh, I definitely need to get myself a motor in the bike just to keep up with you boys Harry Gibbons was putting us under pressure today he was wasn't he yeah (laughs) we got a right little Team Ireland bunch here it's nice uh, we can all go riding at varying speeds but um, it's Mm. still fun on a Sunday to go out and uh, stop for a coffee in Italy and uh, enjoy riding our bikes in the sunshine so um a lot's changed uh, since we were kids back in Ireland. I was the same, riding BMXs and stuff when I was a kid, uh, dreaming about what may be in the future. Um, you, you're only a couple of years older than me, so we grew up in the, the same era. But I spent a lot of time down in Donegal riding motocross. And the one thing I remember was Donegal roads, mm. but from the 90s especially. Uh, those things were more fit for a Massey Ferguson 35 <laughs> than a Pinarello Dogma. So... What uh, made you think, whenever you're in your family car in the back seat, thinking, you know what, I want to ride a bicycle up and down these roads? Oh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a few different things, really, because I didn't have any family connection with cycling at all. You know, it was totally out of the blue. And, like, when I was young, my dad gave me a, a set of golf clubs, and I pursued that. I pursued a lot of different sports, really. pursued football and, and Gaelic, a bit of boxing, a bit of running. Uh, but I was always very active, a lot of energy, and... Uh, I think as a sports person, that having that foundation of, of a lot of different sports at a young age is a really good thing. I see cyclists now like getting so intense into cycling at 12 years old. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. So the way it happened with me almost by accident was really good. You know, I got into cycling almost just by accident through, a, a, through like I said, adventure, just, just escaping. And it was a way, mode of transport almost that started just to go to to mates on the mountain bike and building ramps in the garden and little tracks and stuff and just always loved going on my bike and uh, then I saw I was at, at school and it was uh, lunch break and we were downtown I saw this uh, this uh, poster up for a charity cycle for cancer research and it was from Sligo to Letterkenny which is about 60 miles just over 60 miles I thought, oh, you know, I'd be great to do that. I'll give that a go. Had um, you ridden any sort of distance before that, like 60 miles? No, no, I, no, I hadn't done anything really. And uh, But then that Christmas, uh, uh, an old Peugeot road bike, big steel thing, like real gate of a thing. <laughs> and I just started going out on the bike every day after school doing, you know, just start off with five mile and 10 mile and 15, 20 and just build it up over the weeks. Uh, like looking back now, the way I did it was really, you know, for a, well, I was 14 really, like, the way I progressively built up the training and the load and the volume was quite uh, was quite smart considering I was that, I was that young. You know, I didn't just batter off and try and do 40 miles straight away. So um, I got it, I really got into it, you know, I couldn't get, wait to get home from school and go out on the bike, you know, the long sort of, the long evenings and get out. And uh, I did the, the charity event and some of the local guys who were racing at the time, must they saw me and they were like, who's this kid? And uh, advised me to go to some of the local training uh, runs. I started them and then started doing just local races. Uh, progressed from there on to national races. Was successful at underage and junior level. Got on national teams. So it was all like a very sort of natural progression for me. It wasn't, um, you know, you hear some kids, they have a real struggle all the way through, but I progressed very quickly and smoothly all the way through the ranks you know, representing Ireland at a junior level and, and under 16 level and um, sort of just moved on from there really and uh, I suppose for me the big point came when uh, I finished my leaving cert and my parents were like oh, well you know you need to go to college and uh, I sort of thought yeah you know the, it was a real pipe dream for me really to, to the thought of becoming a professional cyclist going all these races in Europe I think they 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 were quite skeptical as well so 
the university was was on my mind at the time even though I didn't really want to pursue it my heart was in the bike um I uh I shipped off to Liverpool but going back actually to the real uh the sort of thing that ignited it all as well was the tour started in in Dublin in 98 oh, yeah. and uh I went down to watch that with a few mates who weren't interested in cycling at all so they were in like this um arcade like smoking and playing pool and I was outstanding it was raining it was a prologue and Chris Boardman won the won the stage and I stood out all day watching the prologue and all my mates were in like enjoying themselves inside but that was another thing that just got my imagination going it was like it wasn't like anything I'd ever seen before so it really captured my imagination and uh, I suppose it's that, that thing that every young kid has and no matter what sport they decide to go for that uh, there's just that moment, you know, when you see it. And obviously when you see it on the biggest stage and the tour and all the colour and the, the shiny bikes. and Yeah, at that age, you're, you're, you've got a, a mind that's very impressionable. So something like that, Yeah, that's it. Uh, it just takes that one moment. It's funny you just mentioned the Chris Boardman winning that prologue in 1998 in the Tour de France because I'm reading his autobiography at the minute and that's what I just read last night. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. You haven't read that he crashed out the next day or two days later. Uh, yeah, ruined it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to watch this movie called The Titanic as well, but uh, how does that go? <laughs> you ruined everything for me. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I was going to ask then. Um, back then... Irish cycling too with Sean Kelly what he was doing were you watching it on TV as well or was it more like you said in 1998 going down to Dublin and seeing that yeah well Kelly obviously I knew the names Kelly Roach massive names but uh, at that point I didn't know a whole lot about them really you know I was sort of the era of there was Jan Urich or Marco Pantani um, Laurent Jalabert there was that era sort of late 90s and um they were the guys that I sort of really admired and looked up to and in particular like a guy like Jan Urich, if you ever saw him back in the day, he was just this machine. <laughs> it's just immense power, you know, he'd push this massive gear, you know. And just you know, just a machine basically. Um so they were the guys that I was like, Wow, you know, just in total awe of really. Yeah, I remember watching uh Ulrich as well and then when Armstrong came and he had high cadence and he was, was yeah. really spinning it and that this was almost like a new style of cycling and there was yeah, Ulrich just absolutely grinding out I don't know what sort of cadence it looked slow but it was probably still fast then what would he have been putting 80, 90 uh, RPM yeah well he was probably less actually just in terms you know going back to that era as well you know the sort of gear ratios they used was absolutely nothing like what the guys use today you know like on on I, I don't know how, how sort of familiar people are I don't want to get too technical for people but um you know now today we have an, an 11 up to a 28 or sometimes even a 30 whereas back then it would have been an 11 23 or maybe on a mountain day 25 but for like that generation that Uruk Pantani generation it would have been a 23. How the hell they went so, up uh, mountains with no gears left because yeah I've got a 30 sprocket on the rear of my bike which means that you can spin your legs more yeah i couldn't even ride up hills yeah well they had, a, they had a bit of help you know they had a bit of alternative help there also they had the juice didn't they <laughs> <laughs> the juice helped them uh, uh, that powered them uh, up some of them uh, calls i can imagine uh, yeah but yeah that's a that was a whole different era thankfully well i say a whole different era but it's, it's recent enough um yeah I've never dabbled in it myself, so I can't comment. <laughs> I feel like, God, I thought, the way you were looking today, I was, I was asking <laughs> questions. Like, <laughs> oh, one of these days, maybe. <laughs> that would be funny, actually, wouldn't it? Just for the crack, one day post-career, I have a go at that and go out with a motor, fully loaded with EPO, and then just going smoky-wise up some hills. I say that, I still wouldn't be able to. You could give me a, a 250cc engine, probably, and you boys would still beat me up the cold. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't say you can't turn a donkey into a racehorse, but it's a sort of like... <laughs> You know, there is, I mean, there is, I don't want to go talk too much about that, but I mean, the, the guys who were winning back then were still incredibly talented, you know, but they took, obviously they were doing what they were doing, but they were still incredibly talented because everybody else was doing the same thing back in that era in the late 90s, you know. Um, but yeah, don't want to start sort of... Ah, we're not going to open that yeah, kind of worms. I'm yeah, not. That's, that's, that's like, you could do like a book on that really, couldn't we? Well, plenty of boys have done it's in books. It's uh, been said, I don't know. 
what Irish journalist I know that's written a book and I, I know what he's like. I don't know how you put up with some of the, the journalists in your sport. Journalists in, in motorsport are, are really good and we've got a good relationship with them whereas I'm a fan of cycling and sometimes when I read what cyclists write it's just despicable. But Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can understand why um, uh, people are very sceptical, you know. I think we've totally stared off course here actually but, um, you know, I think the, the main thing out of, out of everything today and today's modern cycling there is if you look back 10 years ago there was if you if you cheated or 20 years ago if you cheated there was a more than likely you'd get away with it yeah. whereas now today if you cheat there is more than likely you'll get caught um and i think that's you know i think we have we do have a whole new generation out there now and i think you can really believe for for the cycling fans out there you can really believe uh in what you're seeing basically you know and i've i've seen firsthand you know with with my years at, at team sky that uh the guys put in the hard work and they're just incredibly talented and and the the, the controls and and the drug testing and all that is, is so advanced now that um that that guys you know if they do do something there they, they more than likely will get caught so you'd have to be pretty stupid nowadays to yeah. even dabble in that I think that's why the Tour de France this year was unbelievable to watch because mm. you really have um, the best cyclists in the world going at it and that's one thing that I love about cycling is that it's not about the, the bike as much, you know, Formula 1, motorbike yeah. racing, the bike is such a big percentage, getting more, that's the unfortunate thing where you mm. maybe 60% of the equation, now it's pushing 80% if not more, mm. for you guys it's it's um, role reversal really with yeah. the cyclist is everything and that's why it's, it's such a great sport. The Tour de France this year was just epic to watch and I think we're in for a golden era of cycling now because we're going to get plenty more of those tours. Yeah, I think it was, well, with a week to go, less than a week to go, there were still five or six guys that could potentially have won the tour, you know, it was, and we had Julian Alphilippe there causing mayhem, <laughs> people were wondering how long he was going to go for. He kept going. And he kept going and the French public, you know, they deserved a bit of a... You know, a bit of fortune after all the, the sort of barren years they have had. So, um, yeah, it was. Uh, I think it's pro it's the most exciting tour. I don't know if I'm being biased, uh, but the most exciting tour that I can remember, really. I mean, it was unfortunate they had to cancel the, one of the very decisive stages that actually ended up. Um, it sort of defined the GC and they end up it sort of defined Egan Bernal's victory, but. Um, well, that's the thing about cycling you're in all the elements you're in the mountains who knows what's going to happen if anybody doesn't know it was a massive landslide there was a huge storm uh hailstorm landslide it was uh it was like biblical conditions they had to like cancel the stage mid-stage and take the time at the top of the second last line and um it totally changed the outcome i think of the race i think uh uh well yeah it'll all be what ifs but definitely one of the most exciting tours uh of the recent generation what i loved what i was watching that stage live and whenever um the the official came past and notified the riders to say that the the stage was over i just loved the the fact that garant thomas had been robbed and he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and he understood that ah yeah uh, that's how it goes you can't change the weather and the latin cyclists like the italians yeah, yeah, were yeah. just giving off hell to the organizers who could change nothing yeah but that just showed what a great champion g is because he understood right away that he had been robbed of his chance of winning a second consecutive tour and he just uh, took it on the chin and that was it yeah he is he is quite laid back guy you know um that's just his character you know and like you say fiery italians to get a bit worked up but when you've got a landslide on the road I, I, in fairness you know guys the way it works in that you know you think all all the riders know but i mean at the rate the way the race radio works and the way the earpiece um the way the director sport thief in the car transmits the message from the race organizer maybe there could have been some communication problems for some riders who weren't fully aware of what was going on because i think it was such a localized storm that the part that they were descending was absolutely fine so i can imagine myself as a rider who going down a climb and it looks fine you know how can you say the race has stopped because the road is blocked and because there's snow and hail on the road so but like you say it's going back to to just the sort of personalities of you've got 180 different riders and you know 20 or 30 different nationalities they're all they're all different but yeah you know gee um 
took it really well actually you know um i mean who knows what could have happened really if it had to continue it was a long way to the finish from that point and he could have sat on and used egan as a sort of as a as a jumping as a jumping point as a so yeah uh yeah it's one of them things but i mean egan bernal is the youngest youngest rider to win the tour in a hundred years or you know something crazy like that so he's uh hopefully we don't get into one of these situations where he's going to dominate the, the tour for the next six years which is a possibility that's what everybody's saying but uh i think what everybody loved about this year was that it was so unpredictable nobody nobody knew what was going to happen the time gaps were so close there was no team team Ineos were a lot weaker this year than they have been in the past and um it was open it was such an open race and um I think the tour needed that this year because they had so many years where Team Sky were, were just dominating things and it was almost just a procession really the way they could control the race and shut down the race so um, so yeah it was a good race even though Team Ineos ended up winning first and second on GC it was still all to play for there in the, in the last week yeah as we say back on Megan Bernalis some man for one man <laughs> he is, yeah, he yeah. Uh, it was pretty impressive um, so going back to I think you just uh, began to talk about it there whenever you were leaving school and yeah, like your your parents are, oh, you go to university. So I, I know a bit about this part of the story and that's why I was looking forward to, <laughs> to speaking with you about it because it's just a, a brilliant uh, chapter. Yeah, um, rewind, or rewind 20 years. Yeah, going back to <laughs> yeah, it is almost, yeah. isn't it? So you had a decision to make, um, yeah. leaving school and uh, you're, you have to go and either study or or get a, a real job as we were always told at that age and you, you've got this pipe dream to become a professional cyclist so uh, I'll run to the fridge and get you another beer because I can see it's empty and uh, you can you can start talking about your your. So your I'll move. be talking to myself? Well I'll be back in right, 30 you'll seconds. Still be, you'll still be able to hear me. I'll still be listening from the kitchen. Because so. I'll feel weird I'll be like talking to talking to the mic by myself. Right. All yeah right. but the, the thing is you're getting a beer out of this so. Oh right okay right that'll <laughs> So yeah, I'll go back to my story of the uh, the the big decision really of of going to university. Uh, I had a quite a successful summer of the year before, uh, raced on the national team and had some offers for some 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 sort of decent uh, level amateur teams, and uh, refused them obviously because I had to go to university to do an incredibly boring university course. <laughs> Thank you. This is, yeah, what was this number three? Uh, number three, you're doing well. I'm not. And um, so I went, I had the World Championships that year. So I started university in September. I had the World Championships in October, under 23 World Championships. And I, I, I moved into my accommodation in Liverpool. I was in the student accommodation and it was just absolute mayhem, as you can imagine. But you what know. were you going to do to study? You had something lined up? Yeah, I was going to do quantity surveying. So, uh, you know, like a decent option at the time. My heart, I mean, I don't know whose heart can be in, in uh, quantity surveying. It's almost like an accountant for the building world. Yeah, over being a pro cyclist, I think. Uh, yeah, it's you a know bit of a one. different lifestyle. Uh, so, yeah, I had the World Championships in mind when I went there, just as a sort of last uh, event for the end of the season. But uh, the student accommodation was just like, you know, everybody was smoking. You know, it was just, just it wasn't a good environment for... Yeah, student for, life yeah, compared was to pro cyclist fully life. Fully student life, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was quite embarrassed actually about being a cyclist because the, the people who I were living with, they were just didn't get it. And I would, I would put like, I'd get on all my Lycra and um, I'd put a tracksuit over it and then I would cycle out of the student campus and then I would take the tracksuit off and put it in a bag and then I'd have my sort of Lycra on underneath that. That's how like I was just, I was worried about sort of probably people making fun of me you know yeah but uh in the end up i stayed with um uh, a guy called terry dolan he makes he makes bikes he's one of the, he's quite a well-known british bike manufacturer and i had a, a friend of mine at the time said look go out and stay with him he lives 10 miles outside of liverpool and you can uh you know you can focus on the worlds and train well and then when you finish the worlds you can go back to the student campus again and uh <clears throat> did that you know he was really good really accommodating got trained got through the world championships okay and then I went back to college and I was like oh, you know I really do want to be doing this and 
the team in France who I had been in contact with said, come for a training camp. This was January time. And just come for a training camp. It's a week, 10 days, and see how you feel. And I went there. And I said, like, oh, yeah, this it just felt right, you know. And I went back to Liverpool for one day. I sat through about 10 minutes of a seminar and just walked out, went to the library, <laughs> booked a flight, and flew back out a couple of days later. And uh, But... I didn't really tell my parents what I was doing, so uh, they still thought I was in university for about three or four months after that. They were, well, I was in France racing my bike, but they thought I was in university. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. That's the yeah. part that I love is the fact that for a few months that yeah. you couldn't write that. Yeah, and but the yeah the guy. So my parents kept ringing the guy I was staying with, and. Uh, he would just say, he just sort of kept making up excuses. He was like, oh yeah, he's in the library studying today or he's doing this, doing that. Like, so he was like, kept the thing. That's why it kept going. That's why it took like three, four months for him to find out really. Cause he kept thinking of these brilliant excuses <laughs> that I was somewhere, uh, not in France racing, somewhere in the library probably. I love the fact that he covered for you for, for that long. That's uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's impressive. A, that is a, a good effort. And saying about your your parents as well, and because uh, no cycling background, I loved when you told me about the when you were shaving your legs in the bathroom and your dad walked in yeah. when you were a kid. Yeah. yeah, the look of just disgust and disappointment. <laughs> he just, thought you were going to dress in drag or something. Just yeah, just shook his head and went, "Oh no!" And I was like, "No, dad, that's this is what cycles do." And I had raced for like a year, well, two years with like hairy legs, and sort of people were looking. Yeah, you're a cyclist now, you shave your legs. And I was always like, oh, no, I can't do that, I couldn't, can't do it. And then, yeah, in my sort of third third year, uh, when it got to the point of uh, the reason you actually need to mas- to to shave your legs is because of massage and, yeah. you know, you spend, you know, 40 minutes on them, uh, up to an hour on the massage table every day, getting your legs massaged. It's quite sore when you, when you have hairy legs. So, uh, and then obviously cuts and, and, and all the rest, it's easier to get infected with hairy legs. But my dad just was like, just didn't know what to think. It was <laughs> totally understandable because he didn't have a clue about cycling, which in a way was actually, it was quite good because I wouldn't have liked to have a, the opposite end of the scale where you have a sort of pushy parent pushing you into things. Uh, so I liked the fact that they didn't have a clue about cycling in a, in a weird way, apart from when I went home and they would sort of pick my brain and and just not have a clue, basically. <laughs> you were rowing your own boat. That's the, the nice mm. thing. It was your passion and your passion only, and that's why uh, you made a 14-year professional career out of it. Mm. And it's not easy starting off in a professional cycling because, especially in the era you were coming through, what you had to do then was uh, go and, and race in France and go and live in a foreign country where you know we grew up not really speaking any other language. So suddenly, yeah, in 2004... You were with a amateur team in Marseille? Yeah, in uh, 2003 was my first year there. So you were already there in 2003. Did you move yeah. there in 2003? Or yeah, what? fully, fully moved there, yeah. We were in a, we had a big apartment, big apartment. There was a lot of us in, in this apartment. It wasn't that big uh, in 2003, yeah. And it was good. There was a couple of Irish guys there, in fairness. It was good. It was uh, quite a forward-thinking club in terms of the way most of the French teams were. And it was down just outside Marseille so it was nice weather and really you know not dissimilar to here really um good weather good training roads and yeah just to let people know we're not actually sat in letter Canada in this podcast <laughs> no. when he says weather similar to here we're sat in Monaco <laughs> right, yeah. yeah it's like uh not as well obviously not as fancy as here it was six of us in a sort of we had bunk beds in a six of us in a three-bed apartment and uh, I was sharing with a Japanese guy. It was such a diverse team, really, for an amateur team back then. Didn't uh, Nico ride for that team Nico, as well? Nico, Nico Race. Nicholas Roach, yeah. There was a period when I was there. It sort of started when I came there in 2003, where each year for about five, six years, they would have two or three guys turn professional out of that club. And the guy who ran it, Frederick Rostang, he was, you know, he was really, you know, I don't think, oh, well, I wouldn't have made it without him, really. He was really supportive and... He sort of embraced um, foreigners as such. You know, a lot of French teams really just wanted to sort of develop their own homegrown talent, whereas he was open to bringing in guys and and nurturing them and guiding them through. And 
and uh, yeah, really lucky that I ended up in that team really because I can imagine you hear some horror stories about sort of young kids going from Ireland to somewhere in France and like a little random village and they're just totally isolated. They're in this little crap apartment and and you know after a few months they just go home because they get homesick. Yeah. Whereas we were working hard on the bike, training hard, racing well, and then having a bit of a laugh outside of it, which is what you need. And uh, so yeah, it was it was the right team, the right place, and uh, sort of you look back through the years. There's a lot of people that you need to be sort of grateful to that help you along the way, but I was definitely one of them. Yeah, but still, it was a French team, and you went there only being able to speak English, and now you're a fluent French speaker. So how did it work out first? Yeah. Whenever you were in the team, whenever you were going out on the sort of length of rides that you guys do, yeah. uh, was anybody conversing with you in English, or were you having to, to try and pick up the French immediately? Not really. I mean, it was sort of... Uh, I had done French for leaving certain school, but I slept uh, through most of the classes because <laughs> I thought, I'm never going to need this. And uh, I so I had the basics, basically. And back then, it was just, I had a little book, and each day after training, I would uh, I would go and go through the phrase book and go through the book and learn, just start off the real basics and, and sort of every day did a little bits and pieces and gradually picked it up. But there wasn't really a choice, you know, you had to know if they said, we'll meet at this time in this place, you had to understand it and you had to understand the the race meeting and, and you had to be able to communicate with a mechanic or or whatever. It might be similar if you if you have an Italian mechanic who doesn't speak very good English. Uh, but that's why you speak so clear as well because you haven't got a typical yeah. Donegal accent. You have to speak I clear. can make a switch of you, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, how your accent... It does change because people need to understand yeah, you. So yeah. if we talked uh, full gas... There's not a chance that uh, French or Italians could understand oh, us. Oh, no, no, So yeah, the French, the, the French picked it up over the, over the, the two years with them, and then I signed for a professional, a French professional team, H two R, and that was again even more like proper French team. You know, it was uh, so I, I I mean I wouldn't say you say I speak fluent French. I wouldn't say it's fluent, but it's I can get by. Proficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> proficient. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard you speak in French, and that's it. A lot of people throw around the word uh, fluent, but you can you can speak well, and yeah. uh, that's uh, the important thing, which you had to do for your career. And yeah. it's um, I can imagine how difficult that would have been at that time because God, you're living so far away from home, and uh, everybody's speaking in a foreign language. You want to go to the supermarket, you want to go for lunch. Mm. Uh, there's a good chance they're not going to speak English, so. Um, <laughs> If you want to eat, you have yeah, to learn yeah. the language. We're sort of spoiled here that we're sort of in France, but everybody speaks English. But yeah. where I was, it was like, you know, nobody spoke English. Nobody. Yeah, no chance. So, you, you, yeah, it is that literally you just don't have an option. You know, it's like, ah, you know, I should do this, but I probably shouldn't. But if you, if you want to sort of survive, you have to. And I think that was the big, the big point. But, um, I quite enjoyed it, you know, like just sort of got stuck into it and like I say, it wasn't, I wasn't like doing, spending hours studying every evening, it was just, you know, just sort of the odd word, phrase here and there regularly every evening and uh, just pick it up over time. Yeah, take it as it comes, you're spending so much time on the bike as well and mm. every day is probably a French lesson then. Mm. So if you looked at that year in 2004, um, your last year as an amateur before you broke through to be a pro. Was there a pivotal race or a pivotal moment where you got um, your hands on the pro contract? Or um, yeah, I guess you were looking after yourself. You didn't have a manager at that time. No, did I you? didn't have a manager. But my my he wasn't an agent as such. But the the team manager of the the team I was with was in contact. Or you know, it back then, uh, the pro teams would would just get in touch with him directly if they were interested in a rider. But he wasn't an agent, and that he was taking a cut for. He was you know he was just doing it for, you know, because he was trying to help us basically. Um, but yeah, I had quite a, a lot of success really in 2004 and, and the team I ended up with was, was a, called AG2R. They're still in existence today with the La, La Mondiale under Vincent Lavenue. And around May time I went and did a physiological test with them on the on a sort of bike. They measure your threshold power on, in a lab yeah. with the VO2 max and all the rest. And it was the day before a race 
uh, I can't remember what it was. I think it was uh, in Evian, where the where the where the water is. The Evian water. You know? There you go. Yeah. Nice <laughs> yeah. And there's an interesting story about the race, but I did a good test, um, so they were happy with that. And uh, the next day, I won the race in Evian. But the way I won it was quite strange, really, because we were in a group, and um, uh, cows came out onto the road and fully blocked the road. There was maybe 50 cows, fully, fully blocked the, blocked the road. And one of the guys went up the side. He was a cyclocross rider. He went up on the sort of hedge, and I followed him through the cows. And all, everybody else was terrified of these cows. You know, they all stopped. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, just gonna keep going, and I was going through this herd of cows, going hup, 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 <laughs> sort of shushing them back because I spent a bit of time on my uncle's farm, so I knew like I wasn't really scared of cows as such. So then I went to the finish with this guy, and I, and I won that race. Uh, so that was one, and then about a week later, I won a big uh, under twenty three World Cup race. It was called Ronda Lazard, and that was uh, that was the moment I got the phone call. Then the Monday after that race finished. Uh, to go up to Chambry in, in, in France to sign the contract and that was like wow couldn't believe like that was it that was the pipe dream became reality yeah then. yeah the pipe came through yeah. finally making it through and yeah. your first contract then um, because you're a neo pro in your first year what do they offer is it a one year contract or a two they have to offer two years as oh, a neo pro yeah they do it's I mean it's very much the money's not great you sort of have to start off and, and work your way up um but they have to offer two year to a neo pro, um, and unlike a lot of guys, they sort of need to do stagiaires, which is sort of like a trial, or you know they sort of they put you in the system at the the back end of the year that you're gonna start maybe, uh, sort of from the end of August to the start of September, you race with them for six weeks, eight weeks. But I didn't have to do that. I signed in June, in in two thousand four to start in in on January first of two thousand five. So. Uh, yeah, it was it was a bit of a whirlwind, really. Just sort of you, you, you know, you sort of master one part of the sport, and then you just sort of get chucked in at the deep end, and and you have to almost start from scratch again. Then when you move on to professional level, so well, yeah, and you stayed with AG two R for for four years, but like you say, whenever you first go as a neo pro, it's not like the the huge salary arrives so even then you've made it as pro but staying pro is the important thing because uh, yeah. you need uh, you need to exist so mm. it must have been pretty tough then so you would have signed a two year contract did you renew again with them uh, shortly after? Yeah so uh, at the end of the first year uh, of that contract uh, I met the the manager of Avenue at, uh, at the World Championships and he said look we'll, we'll, we'll tear up this existing contract and we'll do a new three year contract so I had quite a good uh, first year with them um, so I end up spending four years with, with AG Tour and from the second year of my career onwards I, I really struggled with a lot of different things it was with illness, with injury and um, my training I suppose I got sort of stuck in that trap of, uh, of training too much and not resting enough and not eating well That is and, the French system isn't yeah. it where they don't like to eat it's yeah. so strange when yeah. I see the, the calories that you guys are, are burning whenever you ride on the bike and I know the French system is like no no don't eat food is the enemy almost and it just mm. goes against everything <laughs> yeah. that I know so I had a lot of I mean I had glandular fever for you know eight months pretty much from just training too hard and not eating well and you know I'd come in from a, a long bike ride and have a salad and you know, I look back at some of the stuff that the, the, the training I was doing and the nutrition I had, and I was like, "What was I? What was I thinking?" You know, it was just madness. And uh, that was how it was back then. Yeah, though, yeah. It? I, I wonder now, like how. I mean, there was no way I was ever going to recover from a hard training session with the with the food I was getting in after training. And uh, so yeah, I had a rough, rough sort of few years with, with them until got myself healthy and I had a few little crashes and injuries and stuff along the way, but. At the end of my four years uh, with them, I was sort of like looking at sort of going back to university again. I had finished the Beijing Olympics, and uh, I had looked, I had sort of looked about just stopping it, you know. And uh, then my agent, uh, he's quite, a, he was just sort of starting out at the time. Andrew McQuaid, he had a team lined up. He says, "Oh, this Cervelo, 
the new team starting up and, and then I just totally changed everything. The nutrition, the training, got parameter, got like scientific with training and, and started eating well and resting resting well in between training, you know. I wouldn't sort of uh just go out and do junk miles, you know, I would go out and do have every day would be structured and specific and and uh and then sort of just totally flipped it around. Went from having a year where I wanted to stop cycling to having my most successful career. So it's sort of funny how things can they can just change in the space of twelve months really. That is one thing I meant to mention earlier whenever you were talking about uh, how you train for that uh, charity ride and you, you had no knowledge but the fact that you actually structured it well is mm. funny because you always were very aware of the training that you were doing and now you're doing uh, uh, coaching with uh, Panache Cycling as well so that's a natural progression some cyclists that I know don't know what they're doing they'll just do what the coach tells them mm. have no idea but you're always very aware of training of nutrition of recovery what uh, you needed to do so um, that's a natural progression that you've went on to, to coach another cyclist as well with the knowledge you've gained during yeah. a 14 year career yeah yeah I mean I'm lucky that I've worked with so many different great coaches over the years and I've learned so much and uh, I really enjoy the process you know I really enjoy the numbers and I enjoy looking at sort of analysing things and um, when I retired it was definitely one of the things that I wanted to get into um, because like I say I'd, I've, I've sort of seen I've seen the results of having that structure and having the knowledge there and having you know that specificness and and not falling into that trap of doing too much and 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 getting the quality out of everything rather than just quantity. Uh, so yeah, I'm really enjoying. I'm sort of getting stuck into the coaching now and enjoying it. Yeah, and um, maybe you could coach me. I'd go up the Madon a little <laughs> bit quicker one day. But you said about 2009, then whenever you signed for the Cervelo test team, that was arguably one of your best years, what you did in the, in the, the Vuelta in the stage 18 there, to, to break away with... Uh, oh, yeah. Knowledge uh, there. I know the, <laughs> the cycling history there. It was just you and... Um, was it Roman Kreuziger was uh, with Roman you in the Kreuziger, break? Roman yeah, yeah. He didn't, the, he didn't read that, by the way, but he knows, he knows the stuff. He knew it off heart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> oh, well, Roman Kreuziger now, he was in the podium in the third this year or last year, wasn't he? No, well, he hasn't been on the podium for a Who long time. Who am I getting mixed up with? He was in there the with the boys. Yeah, I'm getting uh, there was, uh, up with somebody. There was a strong, there was a strong breakaway, and uh, I sort of had a double, double victory that day because I went from, I got the stage victory and I moved into the top ten. Yeah. And um, I can't remember the. I should know this stat really, but I was the first Irish victory in eighteen yeah, years. Stephen Roach in nineteen ninety two. Yeah. Yeah. Good man, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know, you know your stats better than me. I'm a numbers guy, so uh, I remember these things. So yeah, it was uh, a huge day. Like I never, I, I remember the stage that I won. It was in Avila, and it was um, one of the stages when I was a kid. I, I sort of got home from school, I turned on the TV, and I saw a guy called Frank Vandenbroek win the stage. It was quite a famous stage. It finished on on cobblestones, and finished in this medieval walled town, and. Uh, you know, I watched that stage, it was 99, I watched him win, and I was like, oh, wow, it looks, looks mad, it looks, looks just incredible, and then sort of, you know, to come 20 years later. 10 years later? Sorry, 10. About we'll get the math right. 10. No, it wasn't, it was... <laughs> the 1999, and you won it in 2009? Sorry, it was... Yeah. I don't know. 10 years, there you go. <laughs> Ten years, yeah. I'm getting confused because I'm so old now. Fucking hell. Yeah, ten years later, yeah. To think I've done that. It didn't seem like ten years passed so quickly, actually. Yeah, a lot happens in a short space of time when you go from being a teenage kid just dreaming of something to, to then achieve it. And that's that's pretty poignant to, to win that exact stage that you'd dreamed of watching on TV. Um, that was a, a special moment then, especially after, like you said, you've been through a few tough years with glandular fever and, and all the rest, and mm. as a cyclist with glandular fever, that just knocks you um, completely back, doesn't it? So to return like that, I think a lot of teams probably would have been looking at you and uh, wondering, yeah, is this guy, is he capable still? And then to go and win a Grand Tour stage, mm. uh, that was a, a massive moment then for you. So um, 2009 that was, and then what was your... 20 years <laughs> again we've got to correct you that but that's 10 years ago <laughs> you're only a pup sure. uh, we're only young I wish it was 10 yeah. 
So uh, I met you shortly after that then because uh, we've got the same osteopath back in, in Derry and Mickey Kerr that looked after us both. So I think I must have met you in 2010 then around that time when uh, I was always breaking myself up, crashing off motorbikes. And then, like you said, being a cyclist, you were going through some tough times um, as well. Uh, we met each other in 2010. The first race that I was due to come and see you racing then was the Giro in 2011. I'd uh, I'd won uh, at Monza, World Superbike race with Yamaha. I'd done the double race win on Sunday. And then I was due to come and see you. It must have been on Tuesday morning, I think. And on the Monday night, come back into my hotel, I got a phone call from my crew chief or a mechanic or something, uh, arriving at my hotel. And as I parked in a multi-story car park, uh, I'm still on the phone, still had signal, arrived in the hotel and uh, went to, the, to my room, checked in, still on the phone. Then uh, the next morning, woke up, set my alarm for how much time I needed to drive and come and see you at the stage start because you were riding with the Radio Shack that year, wasn't it? Mm. And I uh, had it all worked out. And as I woke up, I went, shit, where is my car parked? And I thought, oh, it can't be too hard. There's only this multi-story car park. As I left the hotel, I realized there was two multi-story car parks. <laughs> I ran around for 45 minutes up and down like five levels looking for my car, not just the hotel multi-story, but the one next to it. And sure mm. enough, I hadn't parked in the hotel multi-story. I'd uh, parked in <laughs> in the other one. So that's oh, why no. I was already for 45 minutes late. So if uh, there's an advertisement for not using your phone as you're arriving into a car park uh, driving, then <laughs> you should never be using it. And definitely that time it shouldn't have been. So. I set off and then sure enough got traffic as well so by the time I arrived at the Joe start you boys were all there lined up and I was just kind of waving over going Phil I'm yeah, here <laughs> terrible fan that would never happen to me that didn't happen to me in Manicure uh, no you just turned ago. up in Manicure and uh, watched me crash three times for the first and only time in my yeah. career so you're a real good luck charm I know yeah I was I was like just thinking after day one I'm just gonna leave <laughs> 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 and I had I had to try and tell you every race isn't like this. You don't get soaked through because that was just oh, it was such a horrendous weekend weather wise. Mm. And uh, you'd come to support me, and I just all I did was throw it up the road that weekend. So yeah, definitely. I couldn't I couldn't believe you. You just you you just got on a brand new bike that you never ridden before and just raced it. You know, like they were building up a bike and you know the sort of speeds and the sort of you're right on the limit with a bike that you've never really. You never been on, you know, because they built up a like pretty much brand new bike, didn't they? Yeah, but that's a testament to good mechanics because if you get good mechanics back in the day when we were allowed a spare bike in the garage, now we're only allowed one bike. But whenever we used to have spare bikes, uh, there was an A and a B bike or a number one or a number two bike, and I really liked it. Whenever uh, I couldn't tell the difference, that's when you knew you had good mechanics because mm -hmm. that means that everything is precise to within a millimeter. Handlebars, brake lever, clutch lever, and then the foot levers as well. And with uh, some mechanics, I had that, and same as what I had that year. You had guys that could build a bike to within a millimeter um, and make sure everything is correct. Because mm. if you haven't got good mechanics, you go out and you can notice five millimeters. Mm. And they're scratching their head, but it's the same as you. Yeah, if your yeah. saddle was too high or too low by a few yeah. millimeters, you'll be able to pick up on it. And that's, yeah. that's why we're at the level that we're at. Mm. Mm. So... Um, so we're what, definitely not going to any more uh, I was going to ask which race am I coming to next then? Um, they're round 14 of the calendar <laughs> right. it's a 13 round series so <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll invite you along again uh, soon ah, you're welcome to come along I don't think I, I believe in are you not superstitious? I think you are superstitious no I'm not I, I always try and challenge them uh, maybe that's my problem I always try and challenge it and say no no I don't believe it and every time I do then something like that happens <laughs> where my Irish lucky charm Philip Dagnan comes along to support me in a race and I crash three times what if I come to the, your next race and you crash again three times will you say Phil just stay away from me no I'll challenge that <laughs> <it> again <laughs> I'll challenge and say no that's just a coincidence if it happens a third time hmm, <laughs> I'd have to question it then but you're always welcome to come along. We'll bring you to, to Portugal for the next race. Why not? Right. Bring Orla as well. I will do, yeah. Well, cheers for that. Um, that was um, nice chatting to you about uh, the years. I knew a little bit of uh, your story. Obviously, I knew about recent years. Uh, you've moved to Monaco here yeah. a similar time to me, so we spent uh, the last lot of years together here. You know, great run of <coughs> years with... Uh, with Team Sky and it was always a pleasure to be able to go out and ride with you guys and try and hang on to your shirt tails. The annoying thing is that you're retired now and I'm still doing the same, still trying to hang on to your shirt tails because you're just too damn quick. Well, you've been, you've had, you've had a bit of time off the bike, haven't you? So you, 
I'll give you a bit of time to <laughs> level the playing field a bit. The thing is, I'm going to get slower and slower because I've I've stopped I've stopped almost a year now, so I'm I'm sort of at a gradual decline, whereas you'll just sort of maintain. So I reckon you know we might even out. Yeah, but this is soon. this sort of thing called talent that I'm missing. <laughs> <laughs> it's fundamental. Yeah, true. Uh, but I enjoy riding with you guys, uh, even if it's just um, for short spins to the coffee shop. And I remember going up the the called the Madon with you once and. Again, your modesty, that you don't realise your level, what you're uh, capable of. I was going up to Madon, and I was suffering uh, going up there, and you just looked across at me, because you were nearly on a recovery ride going up the Madon, and you just said, are you serious? Yeah, <laughs> More or less I, I'm surprised you didn't say, get away from me, you're ignorant. Oh, it was, it was, yeah. when I was, and that was pretty early on in the climb, but that, <laughs> that just spurred me on more to say, all right, I'm an embarrassment right now, I've got to keep a... Keep yeah. on going. And I, I was quite hard on you that day, wasn't I? Normally yeah. I'm alright, but I, was, I must have been impatient or something. Yeah, I think I, uh, yeah. you wanted to get up the hill quickly and I was just holding you up, wasn't I? Yeah, well, I mean, we can always do another test, test climb maybe during the summer. I can sort of need to see where you're at now. Like, we haven't done, that was 2014, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, the last it was a few time. years ago. Yeah, it was 2014 the last time we went up there. First year I moved here, so... Yeah, strange that we'll it's been five years past and I didn't want to go up the Madon with you again. Yeah, <laughs> After you looking across I and I will saying, have to do it again now then. Yeah, I've got... You've sealed got a, your fate now. I've got a trek Madon, <laughs> so i got to go up there and actually produce a decent time. So we'll do it one of these days and then you can get on my uh, superbike as well. That's a deal. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I'll just check my health insurance first and then we'll, we'll, we'll see. Ah, you'll be grand. I'm not, I've just, I have an X-Max 125, so I'm you, happy with my Yamaha. I can fairly talk to that scooter as well, you're handy. Yeah, I mean, I throw her about a bit, but, I mean, we saw, we see some people on scooters here, don't we, and they're just absolute, like... They're Death wish. Certain. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, they ride scooters around here, like, they're, they, they have, they're like a cat, you know, like... Yeah, that's one thing I'll say about uh, you Irish boys. You and Sam Bennett went karting with me once, and I was the quickest one. And you and Sam were second and third. And the rest of the guys, the English and Brits and Dutch and all the other cyclists, were hopeless. And some of them even owned their own carts, didn't they? So I was pretty proud of that. The top three guys were Irish, so it means that we can steer rightly. I think yeah. I think it goes back to our sort of upbringing and and. Maybe you, you know, uh, having a go around Donegal roads. I'm, you I am from Donegal, so the sort of rallying is in, is in my blood, really. So, you know, buying... No, I'm not going to that, actually. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll say I nothing. was going to go off on another story there, but uh, yeah, I'll get myself into trouble. Yeah, we'll wrap it up there then. So, um, thanks for your time. Um, that was that was good fun. I hope you enjoyed um, chatting with me. I hope you enjoyed the, the Blue Coast beers. Another little plug in there, why not? Yeah, it is very good. I'm on the blonde. Um, and it's very good, yeah. I'll have another, please, Eugene. <laughs> All right, we'll end this uh, conversation then and I'll open you up another beer. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Cheers.